Well, this morning, as part of our, our worship of God, we are going to gather around the Lord's table. We are going to take the bread and the, the cup, and uh, as we do, we, we will invite all of those who uh, know uh, Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to join us in that time of remembrance, that time of, of celebration along the way. Well, we want to take a few moments and, and prepare for that. Uh, and kind of redirect our, our thoughts and hopefully our heart uh, toward that. And I'll encourage you to find Revelation chapter 1, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the first chapter of that book, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at just a few verses there uh, this morning. But as you're finding that, I'll get us started by uh, uh, sharing some insights from uh, a Professor Adam Zeman. Professor Zeman is a professor of cognitive and behavioral Neurology, and I, I'm sure all of us have done lots of reading uh, on that in the past few days, right? Uh, but he, he kind of has a, 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 an area where he deals with, with folks that are particularly dealing with amnesia and memory loss, and so caused by a variety of, of factors. And he wrote an essay, and in that essay, he talked about two patients in particular. He talked about Peter and Marcus, and they, they described their amnesia in very, very similar terms. Here are some of their words. My memory of my past is a blank space. I feel lost and hopeless. I'm trying to explore a void. Both described how disconcerting it was to look at a photograph. And even though they recognized themselves in the photograph, they had no memory or no recollection of the moment. It was like reading a biography of a stranger. And they were conscious of even more recent memories slipping away. They kind of described it like a ship going off into the fog, and, and all of a sudden you just can't see it. You can't bring it back again. Two things stood out in that essay that I think may even speak to us. He said, first, without a memory, it's hard to cling to an identity. So without a memory, you, you kind of don't know who you are. One of the patients said, I don't have moorings that other people draw on to know who they are. Without this memory, I struggle to know who I am, to have an identity. The second thing that they noted was, it's hard to have hope when you don't know your past. It's hard to have hope in the moment. It's hard to have hope for the future when you don't know your past. Memory is tied to our identity, who we are, who we understand ourselves to be. It is tied to our hope, our hope for the challenges and the opportunities of this moment, about our hope for the unknown, for the unforeseen, for what's ahead. Now, perhaps none of us have radical amnesia, maybe a little memory loss every now and then along the way. But I think Jesus knew something about us. He knew that there are times we would struggle to remember, to remember what's really important, what really matters, to remember those things that kind of are anchors for our soul, those things that will give us identity, those things that will give us hope for the moment and for the future. And because I think he knew we have a tendency to forget, he gave to us some markers 
some markers along the way to help us to remember. And one of those was the Lord's Supper. It's to help us to not forget, to not forget some of those central truths to build our lives upon, those central truths to draw our identity from and to build our hope now and for the future upon. And so as we prepare to come to that marker, that act of remembrance, I want us to think about how do we prepare for that. Well, what is it that we really are trying to remember? And I want to suggest to you from just a few short verses in this first chapter of Revelation, some things that John says that can help us to God to say, these, these are some things that I want to remember as I come to the table this morning. I'm going to just read verses 4 through 6, and then we'll uh, kind of back up and, and pull them apart a little bit there, but invite you to follow along. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's a lot packed into just a, a few verses there as John opens up this letter, but I want to just kind of highlight five thoughts, five important truths for us to remember as we approach the table this morning. Uh, the first truth is God is in control. God is in control. Did you notice uh, the phrasing there? Uh, he, he is uh, talking about uh, the one who was and is to come, uh, who is uh, the one who is the ruler of the king's on earth, that we have a God, we serve a God who is in control. Now, we have a world that very often is filled with fear. And maybe there's some of those fears in your life. There's a lot of in our world that seems out of control right now. Even as you kind of survey the political landscape just in the past few weeks, it seems like even, even some nations uh, that are pretty stable seem to be going through crisis, whether it's impeachment inquiries in our country or, or uh, a recent election with some kind of mixed results in Canada or Israel being still yet unable to fully form a government or England and uh, Britain and the whole issue around Brexit and all that's going on there. It just, it just seems like there's so much in our world that's out of control. And on a more personal level, maybe some of us are feeling that, that there's some things in my life that are out of control. There are things happening that I don't directly control. And it can be frightening and it can be disorienting and it can be frustrating. But we are reminded that we have a God who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. I love what Adrian Rogers said years ago. It's just one of those memorable phrases. He said, there has never been 
an emergency called meeting of the Trinity. <laughs> Don't you like that? Uh, you know, sometimes we have to have an emergency meeting at work or, or at a church or in our neighborhood or wherever, or our family, right? It's like, oh, there's this crisis. There's this thing I didn't foresee or I didn't expect or this caught me totally off guard. There has never been an emergency meeting of the Trinity <laughs> because we have a God who is absolutely in control. Those things that blow us away, take us by surprise, knock us over, disorient us, are fully under control of the one who is, who was, and who is to come. The one who is the ruler of, yes, even the kings of the earth. As we approach the table, we remember the one who was in control even in those events that led to the, the death of Jesus Christ, it, it looked like a mob out of control, but it was not. It was all according to the preordained plan of God. As you and I take a bread and a cup this morning, can we remember, can we remind ourselves that we serve the God who is in control? But not only the God who is in control, but John reminds us that God loves us. That God loves us as he talks about uh, all that he's done. Uh, then he goes on to say, to him who loves us. To him who loves us. Now, I, I struggle at times with, with the word love in our culture because it seems to get tossed around so freely and so loosely and sometimes seems to mean so little at times. You know, I love this or I love that or I love this or you post a like, love this on, online or whatever it might be. And I love you, man, and all these things. And it's kind of like, what does that mean exactly? And maybe when we come to God, we ask that. What does that mean exactly? That God loves us. Well, actually, he showed us. He showed us what that means. Paul put it this way. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was still choosing my way and my kingdom and my thing over him and his kingdom and his will, he said, I sent my son for you. He died for you. That's what we remember. John would write in a letter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, because our identity is shaped and formed by those things that we remember. And as we remember his love for us, we remember what he has done for us. It helps to shape our identity, that I can be called a child of God because of his love. He would go on and write, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world, that we, might, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the, the, the covering 
for our sin, to be the one who would absorb the the wrath of a just and holy God against sin and provide his life in our stead, his blood that was shed so that you and I could experience forgiveness and restoration so that we could be called a child of God. We come to the table and we remember there is this God This God who is sovereign over the universe, this God who is absolutely in control, and that God has said, I have chosen to fix my love upon you. And I demonstrated it in so many ways, but most clearly and most powerfully through the cross of Jesus Christ. He is the God who is in control, the God who loves us, And the God who says that our sins can be forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven as he continues to write. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You and I have been set free. We can be forgiven of our sin because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews reminds us, indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Under the old covenant, there there was no forgiveness without the the, the shedding of blood. You go back, we're in the last uh, book of the Bible, you go back to the very first one, Genesis, those first chapters, you see that initial rebellion of Adam and Eve, of, of the rejection of God's rule, and the determination to be a God unto themselves, and God reaches out in grace to them. And one of the first acts, it's easy to miss in the reading of Genesis there, is that he covers their body. But in so doing, there would be an animal who would give their life. From the beginning, grace was expressed. Forgiveness was expressed through the shedding of blood. As you walk through the old covenant, it was the the shedding of the blood of a a bull, of a goat, of of a lamb. All of those pointed forward from Genesis throughout the pages of the Old Testament. It pointed forward to the one sacrifice that was going to be sufficient. The one that all of those were an image of, that those were were pointing us toward the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Peter put it this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Peter, who had this Jewish heritage, Peter, who who knew something of of the old covenant, Peter, who no doubt had seen all these sacrifices through these years, Peter understood that there was something distinct, something different, something uniquely powerful about the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When we take up the bread and we take up the cup, we remember a body that was broken, We remember blood that was shed. 
so that you and I could be forgiven. It was done because of the love of the Father. It was done according to the predetermined plan of the one who is sovereignly in control. That God in grace and God in mercy delivered us from judgment so that he could offer to us forgiveness of our sins. And as we come to the table, we remember. We remember that our sins have been forgiven. But John also gives us two other things to remember as we approach the table this morning. He tells us to remember we're called to serve. We're called to serve the one who has given so much for us. We are freed from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, that you and I have, have been called as children of God to, to, to serve the one who has given his life for us. Sometimes churches will talk about, they'll even have signs up. We gather to worship, we scatter or we depart to serve. And perhaps that should not be any more powerfully true than on the day we gather around the Lord's table. We gather to remember what he has done for us. We gather to remember his love, his control, his forgiveness, and we scatter, we depart to serve. And we think about that night, that night when Jesus first instituted the bread and the cup, this new covenant in his blood, this reminder, this symbol of the Lord's Supper. And we are reminded that as they came to that room, there were a group of guys that were still jockeying for position. They had proud hearts and dirty feet. And the one who was and is and is to come, the one who was just hours away from arrest and beatings and crucifixion, the one who by all rights <laughs> should have been served well that night. Picked up a basin and a towel and he stooped. And he stooped to serve. To serve those whose hearts were not yet right. Whose feet were dirty. Who should have been serving him. And in so doing, he gave us the calling, the example, that as we come to him, that part of our identity is not only as a child of God, but we are a servant of the king. We are, are those who, who represent as this kingdom of priests. We represent God before people. And he, he, we go on and we, we, we find the admonition in Hebrews. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to what? To serve the living 
God. Part of this, this cleansing, part of this forgiveness, part of this new identity and new relationship that we remember as we approach the table is we have been set free to serve the living God. So that Paul would write to the Ephesians that we We as children of God, we as those saved by His grace, are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That every one of us, uniquely gifted, uh, different ways of serving, but we are all called as His workmanship to serve It is inherent in approaching the table that we remember what Jesus has done. We remember what he modeled. We remember what he has built into us as his child. Part of our identity as we remember is fueled that we are a child of God. We are a priest. We are one who is called to serve the living God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We come to the table. And are reminded that we are called to serve him. One last thing I want you to see this morning. And that is that we must live for his glory. As we approach the table, we, we are reminded that we are called to live for his glory. We are this kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That it was a reminder when we come to the table, it's not all about us. In an age where, where we tend to focus, we want to take a selfie, right? We, we want to be able to customize everything for ourselves. We come to the table and we are reminded of the one who laid down his life for us, that it's not all about me. I am called to a higher calling, to a higher purpose, to live for the glory of the one who loved me, the one who gave himself up for me, the one who is and was and is yet to come. And so we take up the admonition of Paul. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of of God. And it's not just, let's think about the glory of God for a few moments as we take a bread and a cup, but, but whatever we do, this, this memory tool, this marker moment reminds us that it's not just a few moments on Sunday morning, but every moment of all the mornings, of all the days of my life, whatever I do, I am called to do it for the glory of God. And so it reorients my life, my identity, and my hope. And as I approach the table, I recognize that as I come, there is absolutely no room for pride. (laughs) No room for pride. Paul reminded us of this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
when I come to the table, when I recognize all that it represents, I understand it's by grace. It's by his provision. My hope for whatever lies ahead, whatever is at the moment, my hope for all eternity, it's grounded in him. My identity as a child of God, as a servant, as a king, as one who can bring honor and glory to him, it's all rooted in his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. But as we think about that, I'm also reminded of the admonition that Paul gave to the Corinthians that before you approach the table, let each of us examine ourselves. And part of that examination is, am I truly in the faith? And as some of you have heard me teach on this through the years, I just want to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about faith. For a lot of times, belief or faith in our culture is about intellectual assent. I kind of intellectually agree with something. I intellectually agree that I need grace, and I've been forgiven. And for many of us, when we think about examining ourselves and approaching the table, we, we look back on a past memory. Oh, I, was, I, I, I prayed a prayer, or I, I walked an aisle, or I filled out a card, or I raised my hand, or I was baptized, or I was confirmed, or, or whatever it might be. And, and, and I, those, are, those are important moments. But what we've tried to teach through the years is that present posture is more important than past memory. That my present posture is more important than my past memory. And a lot of times we'll use a chair to talk about faith and belief. That we can look at this chair and say, I believe it's strong enough to hold me up. (laughs) And for many of us, that's what we think about when we think about faith and belief. I believe it's strong enough. I believe it could do it. Well, when the Bible talks about belief or faith, it's really a trust. It's really entrusting ourselves. And so to, to kind of put that in terms, I don't really believe, I haven't really expressed, I'm not really in faith unless I have entrusted the weight of my body to this chair that I have intellectually said I believed in. That's what New Testament faith looks like. So as we approach the table, the question is not, do I have a past memory? Because some folks struggle because they can't remember the exact moment they prayed a prayer or stepped across the line. The question is, what's the present posture of my life? Am I in this moment entrusting myself, my past, my present, and my future to him? Am I entrusting that what Jesus Christ did, his provision of grace through the cross was enough, was enough? 
and that I can entrust myself to him. Now, it, begin, it can begin in a moment. There is a moment when I take the weight off my feet and put it on the chair. But it continues as I continue to sit in that posture of trust, of dependence upon leaning on him. And how that looks in daily life is a life of growing obedience. Because if I disobey, I'm basically saying, I don't trust you. (laughs) I don't trust your wisdom on this one. I don't trust your power on this one. I don't trust your timing. I'm not sure in this unique situation that that'll hold me up. And so I get up and walk my own way. And so as we think about approaching the table, I don't want my confidence in yours to be in our good works because we can't earn it. But in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask myself, am I today in a posture where I am fully depending upon him? Does it show? Not that I'm just trusting him for my past and my ticket to heaven someday. But am I trusting him right here, right now? And that trust looks like loving obedience toward the one who says I'm in control. I love you. I have forgiven you. Serve me, trust me, and live for my glory. A couple years ago, three actually, in London, there was a rather strange festival. Seems a little strange anyway. They were celebrating, remembering the 350th anniversary of a great London fire. September 2nd, 1666, excuse me, in the, in the early morning, a bakery on Pudding Lane caught fire. Surrounding structures were soon engulfed and the flames began to, to leap toward the rest of the city. Basically burning it to the ground. And so they had a festival commemorating this event. And as part of that festival, they, they had built this, this mock makeup of what London looked like in 1666. And then toward the end of the festival, they set it on fire. They watched it burn. And maybe you're thinking, that's a weird festival. But to those that were a part of it, they, they understood that, that as gruesome as that great fire was and had to have been to live through it, it's also firmly etched into the city's history as a turning point, the beginning of regrowth and a resurgence for London. But when you think about it, strange as that sounds, What we're getting ready to do is a little strange too, isn't it? I mean, 
we're remembering a human body beaten and broken. We're remembering blood that was shed. When you and I, we have crosses on the, on the logo of our church, we have them in our homes, we have them in, uh, in jewelry and shirts and other things where we're walking around with one of the most barbaric, torturous devices ever devised by man. Doesn't that seem a little strange? Unless, unless you understand that the God who was sovereign in control took that which was horrific and barbaric and would have probably caused most of us to, to flinch and turn our eyes away in horror. He took that which was intended for such destruction and evil by the enemy and in his love and in his power and in his grace, he transformed it into that which rescued, that which redeemed, that which saves, that which sets us free. And because of that, we remember. And as we remember, we reflect. And as we remember and reflect, we are strengthened in our identity and who we are as a child of God, as a servant of the King. And we find our hope. Our hope that whatever is in it before our life right here, right now, God who was able to take the barbaric nature of a cross and transform it for the eternal good and glory can do the same in my life and my circumstances. And I find a hope that Jesus Christ crucified, dead and buried, was resurrected. That death does not have the last word because of the victory that was won in Christ Jesus. That's why we remember. That's why we come to the table. Let's pray together, please. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love that pointed us toward, uh, that pointed you toward an intervening in our lives that you did for us what we could have never, ever, ever done for ourselves. And Father, we just come to you in these moments as we prepare to approach the table, humbled, grateful, and yet joyful and excited. And Father, I pray, Lord, that even in these moments as we reflect on some of these truths from your word, Lord, that you would help us to examine the present posture of our life. You would help us, Father, to understand if indeed in this moment we are entrusting ourselves fully to you. And I'm just going to ask you right now just to be still.